Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 660 for the 15th of September, 2019. This week, we hear about ransomware attacks that affect cities. And while they are frequent targets of malware, some crooks target small businesses and home users because they know the targets will be softer. In short circuits, sometimes it seems that electronic devices go out of their way to make our lives miserable. And when they do, finding a solution to the problem can be challenging. If you've been thinking about switching to an open source Office suite, there are two primary choices, OpenOffice and LibreOffice. So which one is better? We'll take a look. In spare parts, only on the website, when you need to run a notebook, computer, or a tablet for a long time and there's no nearby power source, modifying the computer's power settings can help. It's also a good idea to keep an eye on the battery's performance over time because you'll probably need to replace the battery at least once before you replace the computer. And 20 years ago, some people were in a tizzy about the September 9th computing disaster. It turned out to be even less of a problem than the much-anticipated Y2K disaster. The crooks who run ransomware operations aren't stupid. They've learned that large organizations and large cities generally do a pretty good job of keeping systems updated and often have protections against ransomware. That's not the case for rural counties, small cities, small businesses, and individuals. When huge, lucrative targets make themselves more difficult, the crooks start looking at easier targets. More than 20 municipal governments in Texas were targeted with ransomware this summer. Two cities in Florida, Lake City and Riviera Beach, together paid more than $1 million to thieves. They decided there was no other way to get their files back. Those two cities probably could have put that million dollars worth of taxpayers' money to better use if only they'd had the foresight needed to plan for such attacks. Barracuda Networks says at least 70 municipalities have been victimized by ransomware attacks this year, and the most common vector for planting the malware is, of course, email. The attacks can reach networks, applications, and critical data. Jackson County, Georgia paid nearly half a million dollars in March to regain access to its systems. Large cities are vulnerable too. Last year, Baltimore was attacked. The city did not pay the ransom, but it cost $18 million to recover data and rebuild their systems, and some of the data was lost in the process. The Jackson County attack took down most of the county's IT systems, but it didn't affect the county's website or its 911 emergency system. Jackson County officials contacted the FBI, which says victims should not pay ransom. The county hired a cybersecurity consultant who negotiated with the ransomware operators. County administrators decided that paying $400,000 was better than what they believed the alternative to be. Several months worth of recovery operations during which most of the systems would remain offline. The ransomware used is known as RIOC. 
The source is believed to be Eastern Europe, and the crook's targets are generally local governments, healthcare, and large enterprise networks. Operations like that won't go after smaller targets. Ransomware attacks are distributed via email and file-sharing networks. Some are propagated via online ad servers, but the most common vector involves phishing emails. The largest single ransomware attack to date, WannaCry, used a flaw in Microsoft's Server Management Block, or SMB, protocol to spread an infection throughout entire corporate networks. The U.S. National Security Agency had discovered the SMB vulnerability, but instead of reporting it, developed code called Eternal Blue to exploit the flaw. Eternal Blue was stolen by shadow brokers who released it in 2017. Microsoft discovered the flaw shortly before the WannaCry attack occurred and had released a patch. However, many system administrators had failed to install it. Microsoft was highly critical of the U.S. government for its failure to share information about the flaw. In the early days of ransomware, images were often used to imply that a law enforcement organization had taken over the computer. One common ploy used the FBI logo and stated that illegal file sharing had been detected. The victim was then instructed to pay a fine or risk criminal prosecution. That technique is no longer used, or at least very rarely. Instead, the crooks simply state that they have taken over your computer, that they are crooks, and that you must pay if you want to regain access to your files. Victims typically pay the ransom using Bitcoin or other virtual currencies, but premium SMS messaging and prepaid credit cards are also used sometime. If you become a ransomware victim, No More Ransom might be able to help. It's a European organization that counts as its members the Europol Cybercrime Center, Amazon Web Services, Barracuda Networks, McAfee, Kaspersky Lab, and the Netherlands National Police. There's a link to the website, No More Ransom, from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The site's goal is to help victims of ransomware retrieve their encrypted data without having to pay the criminals. The site notes both the good news and the bad news about ransomware. Good? Well, prevention is possible. Following simple cybersecurity advice can help people avoid becoming victims of ransomware. The bad? Well, unfortunately, in most cases, once the ransomware has been released into your device, there is little you can do unless you have a backup or security software in place. But they're still good. Nevertheless, it is sometimes possible to help infected users regain access to their encrypted files or locked systems without having to pay. No More Ransom has created a repository of keys and applications that can decrypt data locked by several different types of ransomware. Several, but not all. More good news? The battle is over for about a dozen ransomware threats. If you've been infected by one of those, you'll find a link on the No More Ransom website that will lead you to a system that will decrypt your files. But prevention is better than recovery. The project also aims to educate users about how ransomware works and how infections can be avoided. This is information that applies to any business, government, or organization, regardless of size, and also to individuals who want to avoid being victimized. The site lists six key points and two more that apply specifically to WannaCry. First, backup, backup, backup. Have a recovery system in place so a ransomware infection can't destroy your personal data forever. It's best to create two backup copies, one to be stored in the cloud. 
remember to use a service that makes automatic backups of your files, and one to store physically on a portable hard drive, a thumb drive, or an extra laptop. Disconnect these from your computer when you're done. The backup copies will also come in handy should you accidentally delete a critical file or experience a hard drive failure. Second, use robust antivirus software to protect your system from ransomware. Do not switch off the heuristic functions because these help the application catch samples of ransomware that have not yet been formally detected. Third, keep the software on your computer up to date. When your operating system or applications release a new version, install it. And if the software offers the option of automatic updates, take it. Fourth, trust no one. Literally. Any account can be compromised, and malicious links can be sent from the accounts of friends on social media, colleagues, or an online gaming partner. Never open attachments and emails from someone you don't know. Cyber criminals often distribute fake email messages that look very much like email notifications from an online store, a bank, the police, or a court or tax collection agency. These lure recipients into clicking on a malicious link, and then that releases the malware into their systems. Fifth, and I might actually make this one number one, enable the Show File Extensions option in the Windows settings on your computer. This will make it easier to spot potentially malicious files. Stay away from extensions like EXE, VBS, and SCR. Scammers can use several extensions to disguise a malicious file as a video, a photo, or a document. For example, you might see a file like hot-chicks.avi.exe. If you don't show the extensions, you'd see that as an AVI file, thinking it's a video. If you do show the file extensions, it's immediately obvious that it's an executable file, and one you don't want to click. Number six, if you discover a rogue or unknown process on your machine, disconnect it immediately from the internet or other network connections, your home Wi-Fi, for example, or your company network. That will at least attempt to prevent the infection from spreading. And the two additional recommendations for protection from the WannaCry virus, disable SMB version 1 to prevent WannaCry from spreading within the network, and install Microsoft patches. If your patches are all up to date, you don't have to worry about those. The threat is real, and it applies not just to governments, businesses, and organizations. Less skilled crooks go after home users. They won't demand hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they might demand $1,000 if you ever want to see your tax records, your email, and your family photos again. That's why having more than one backup is essential, and it's why having at least one backup that is disconnected from the computer most of the time is even more important. Your cloud-based backup system can become corrupted as the system automatically backs up changed files. A second backup, even if it's a week old, can be the safety net that's the difference between a catastrophic and massive data loss and a relatively minor inconvenience. By relatively minor, I mean that spending several days rebuilding the operating system and reloading files from backup is a lot better and a lot less serious than losing all your data. In short circuits, electronic devices always seem to be looking for ways to confuse us. 
That might be a little bit more anthropomorphism than you feel is appropriate, but these inanimate devices sometimes do seem to have animate motivations, and sometimes this causes us to look in the wrong place when we're trying to solve a problem. On my birthday a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to print a coupon that would give me a free sandwich at a local restaurant. I didn't really need the coupon because the offer had been loaded to the restaurant's app on my phone. But then again, I'm an old guy and I don't implicitly trust phone apps. No big deal. I clicked Control-P to bring up the print dialog, clicked Print, and nothing. No activity, no paper, complete silence. Well, sometimes the printer goes offline, so I reached over and pressed the Start button. That woke the printer up, but nothing appeared in the output tray. All right, no big deal. Sometimes an offline printer will cause a problem with the print queue. So I opened the print dialog and killed the print job. For good measure, I turned the printer off and turned it back on. Then I clicked Control-P to bring up the print dialog, clicked Print, and eh, still nothing. No activity, no paper. No big deal. Sometimes the computer becomes confused. There's a little more anthropomorphism for you. So I restarted the computer, and after logging in again, I opened the coupon, clicked Control-P to bring up the print dialog, clicked Print, and still Nothing. No activity. No paper. All right. Now we have a puzzle and the beginning of an annoyance. So I opened settings and navigated to printers. I found PDF printers, OneNote, and other virtual printers. I found no physical printers. So then I opened ViewScan to see if it could communicate with the scanner that's part of the printer. No luck there either. So has the printer suddenly died? I selected the option to add a printer, and a scan revealed that no printer was available to be added. Will my birthday be ruined? Will I need a new printer? What's going on here? I had a lot of questions. I had no answers. Then I glanced at the computer's notification area, also called the tray. Instead of seeing an icon for an Ethernet connection, I saw an icon for a Wi-Fi connection. Well, that's not right, was my first non-profane thought. The network section of settings was no help, but clearly one of two things had happened. Either the Ethernet connection on my computer had malfunctioned, or there was a problem with the router. I connected to the router's management console to see what the router thought was connected to it. A firmware update was available for the router, but the more important finding was that only Wi-Fi devices were connected four Ethernet connections should have been there. They weren't. So, it wasn't the computer that was confused. It wasn't the printer that was confused. Something had gone wacko with the router. I could have just rebooted the router, but a firmware update was available, so I elected to install the update, which would also then reboot the router. Less than five minutes later, the firmware update had been installed, the router had been rebooted, my primary computer had an active Ethernet connection, and the printer was back online. So, the moral of the story is... Well, the moral of the story is that it's a good idea to open your eyes, examine the symptoms, and pursue the solution that will actually correct the problem. And also that computers and other electronic devices really aren't out to frustrate us. It only seems that way, sometimes.
Despite all their features, Microsoft's Office Suite, WordPerfect's Office Suite, Google's G Suite, and Zoho's Office Suite might not be the right choice for you. These are all paid applications, and perhaps you don't want to pay for an Office Suite. Or maybe you can't justify paying for applications that you rarely use. Or it might be that you just like the idea of open-source applications. If you're in any of those categories, you might already have looked at the open-source Office suites, Apache OpenOffice and LibreOffice. If you want the too-long-didn't-read version, LibreOffice is the right choice. All open-source Office suites trace their origin back to Star Office. It was a Sun Microsystems suite until Sun was acquired and destroyed by Oracle. Oracle OpenOffice was discontinued in 2011. Along the way, OpenOffice was spawned in 2001 and NeoOffice for Mac in 2002. Various forks were spun off and LibreOffice began as a fork of OpenOffice. LibreOffice is the only application that includes frequent updates about twice a year. By comparison, NeoOffice hasn't been updated since 2017, and Apache OpenOffice's most recent update was 2014. The open-source suites all have interfaces that are reminiscent of much earlier versions of Microsoft's Office Suite, and that makes them attractive to some users. Even if you use Microsoft applications most of the time, it's a good idea to keep a current copy of LibreOffice on the computer because it's not uncommon for Microsoft Word to corrupt a file and to do it in a way that Microsoft Word can't open the file. I'm an online acquaintance with hundreds of editors around the world, and it's surprising, in kind of a non-surprising way, to hear from someone who has spent weeks editing a manuscript and finds that the file is suddenly corrupt. A recent copy of the file can be restored from backup, but that might mean losing an entire day's worth of work, or maybe even more. The recommendations follow a predictable pattern. Reload the file after restarting Word, reload the file after rebooting the computer, and finally, install a copy of LibreOffice, open the problem document in the writer application, save it as a Word document, and then try it again in Word. That almost always resolves the problem. Even though OpenOffice hasn't been updated since 2014 and LibreOffice has received updates twice this year so far, there are more similarities than differences. They're both available at no cost. Both run on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. Their interfaces are similar but not identical. Both products are good, and the open-source community would have been better off had the split not occurred, or had it at least been not so contentious as it has been. Perhaps the most significant difference involves formats each suite can write. Both can open nearly all current file formats, but OpenOffice cannot save files in Microsoft's current formats. So if you need to be able to read and write files in Microsoft formats, you'll need either a Microsoft application or LibreOffice. OpenOffice and LibreOffice have different licensing methods, too. OpenOffice operates under the Apache license, and LibreOffice uses the GNU Lesser General Public License version 3 and the Mozilla Public License version 2. There's a lot of technical jargon behind those licenses, but it all comes down to this. LibreOffice can freely incorporate code and features from OpenOffice, but OpenOffice cannot incorporate anything from LibreOffice. As a result, LibreOffice is able to add features faster. Both suites have more than sufficient power and flexibility for most people. 
You can download them and decide for yourself which more closely suits your needs and uninstall the other, or keep them both. You'll find a link to the Apache OpenOffice Suite Downloader and the LibreOffice Suite Downloader on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, www.techbiter.com. There's nothing to download in spare parts, but it's only on the website. This week, when you need to run a notebook, computer, or a tablet for a long time and there's no nearby power source, modifying the computer's power settings can help. It's also a good idea to keep an eye on your battery's performance over time because you'll probably need to replace the battery at least once before you replace the computer. And 20 years ago, some people were in a tizzy about the September 9th computing disaster. It turned out to be even less of a problem than the much-anticipated Y2K disaster. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.